This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young, we're almost Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 145 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. want to quickly thank my podcast subscribers. We're now hovering at half a million Living Fearlessly with Lisa podcast subscribers. Can't thank you enough. want to quickly thank my family and friends over on the other network that I'm affiliated with where of course after the live show you can find the podcast link C-Suite Radio Network. I want to thank my sponsors Halton Honda and Forever for believing in myself and the content and before we get into things and dive in with my guests of this week I just want to quickly give a little shout out to other people that I'm propping today and so who am I going to talk about here? Well as a busy radio host, author, motivational speaker and mom I don't have time to hunt around for a good deal. That's why I love MyBargainBuddy.com. My Bargain Buddy scours the net every day to find the best deals and coupons so you can save 50 to 90% on clothes, shoes, gifts, pet supplies, and more. They even tell you where to score free stuff. Sign up for their free email newsletter for a chance to win a $25 Amazon gift card. When you shop with My Bargain Buddy, you'll never pay full price again. Visit MyBargainBuddy.com today. Well, I have yet another phenomenal guest today. So, jumping and diving right into it. With talented business gurus like Bill Gates, entertainers like Jerry Seinfeld and Robin Williams, and even iconic geniuses like Albert Einstein, all recognized as being on the autism spectrum and bringing high-profile attention to the disorder, Denver-based business consultant Tim Goldstein says for the time is now for company leaders to implement steps to help employees understand the hyper-focused, brilliant jerks who work with them on a daily basis and boost productivity, innovation, and ROI in the process. Tim, 58, was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome only a few years ago at age 54, but the diagnosis changed his life both personally and professionally. After decades wearing many hats in the bicycle business and metalsmith supply industry and spending years as an independent IT consultant, Tim now calls himself a neurodiverse communications specialist, probably the only one in the world doing specifically what he does. Engagements range from initial discovery of the company's needs around neurodiversity and autistic workers through design and implementation of a strategy to recruit and support new and existing neurodiverse workers. Using his cloud neurodiversity idea, Tim helps the business world understand the Spock-like logical approach of the technical world. His first book, Geek's Guide to Interviews, 15 Critical Items for the Technical Type, is also available to those looking to better understand autism in the workplace. His teaching at Cornell University brought a unique perspective to their first course in neurodiversity. Wow. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you for joining us today. How are you, my friend? I'm doing just wonderful, Lisa, and I really appreciate your letting me join you. 
Well, this has been an honor, and certainly I've been looking forward to this. We, of course, have been talking about this uh, for months and showcasing you because I think this is a, a very important subject. We know that autism diagnosis and, and different diagnoses that fall within the spectrum are certainly on the rise, and we need to understand and bring more attention and awareness to the subject, the myths, the stereotypes, demystifying, debunking some of the stereotypes and the stigma associated with it. There's a place for all of us. We need to fit. We need to work together. And in order to do that, we need to understand how we all individually and uniquely function and coexist within this place we call life. So jumping into everything, Tim, you know, I we, we know from the bio that I just plugged here at the top of the hour, you're 58. You were diagnosed at 54. So I'm curious to know, you know, had you always gravitated towards people, whether it be the causes, the agencies, the fundraising initiatives, did you subconsciously have a pull towards that sector without even knowing prior to being diagnosed at 54 that you somehow were relatable or could identify or fit with that demographic? No, the the funny part is it's actually the the total opposite. Interesting. Uh, Pretty much my you know, career prior to that point. Um, I was in the bicycle business for a long time, but I was drawn in by the bicycles and the mechanical stuff and just kind of Peter princeled my, you know, myself uh, all the way up to doing international type work. Uh, then I switched over to really the technical stuff and got into doing IT and design engineering and such. So no, my head really has uh, always been wrapped more around dealing with things and technical kind of, you know, kind of items not particularly dealing with people. Uh, that's actually been one of my challenges and we'll say a long-term challenge. I've always done really good short-term contact, but as they get to me, uh, know me over time and start seeing some of the autistic uh, signs start showing up that we didn't know that they were previously, you know, before I was diagnosed, we just thought that Tim, you know, was a little bit uh, type A and uh, a little bit hot-tempered. Um <laughs> But but it went way beyond type A and hot tempered, you know, straight into, you know, really it was Asperger's, you know, a mild form of autism. So no, it's it's kind of funny. I've uh, while I've always enjoyed people and tried to relate to them, not necessarily real well every time. Uh, it's never been, it never was a career interest. So the the fact that it suddenly became uh, my you know my new uh, uh, mission is really. Surprising even to me. Fantastic. Well, you know, given that some of the things that you've described and what you would know, and I want to delve more into this in terms of the listeners having more specific insight into what somebody with Asperger's, you know, is afflicted by, what, what, how it shows up, how it would be something that could be evidenced by somebody else. So we know a lot of things, whether we're talking about Asperger's or other things, we know that uh, symptoms are often mimicked. So there could be misdiagnosis. There could be people misconstruing and thinking, okay, well, that's just, you know, not a nice person or it's, um, a, you know, a personality clash or whatever. What, how many criteria or what else specifically would you pinpoint that would put somebody on the path of going, okay, maybe I need to delve deeper. Maybe I need to seek medical attention. Maybe I need to go for an assessment. What other things would primarily predominantly show up that indicates this is more than just a personality uh, characteristic type situation? You know, very funny that you ask that right now. I uh, actually was writing an article last night that was really regarding this topic. Mm -hmm. And the point of the article is 
everybody has gotten to associate autism spectrum, whether it's the Asperger's end or the, you know, the less uh, self-sufficient end mm-hmm. with traits. So everybody associates it to specific traits. Uh, you know, a very common one is somebody can't look you directly in the eyes. They're talking to you. That's a very common Asperger trait. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, social, just ineptness, just always seeming like they're, you're half a step out of where the conversation could be because you don't understand necessarily all of the, uh, you know, cultural references that are going on because that's not your world. Mm-hmm. And to me, being somebody on the spectrum and having talked to lots of people on the spectrum, that's not the huge difference. It is the medical criteria, but the huge difference is we think and process and perceive the world as an entirely different thing than somebody who is not on the spectrum, mm-hmm. which is a big difference from saying, oh, they have this trait, they talk this way, they can't look at me, they have difficulties getting organized, which, again, that's the medical criteria, but that mm-hmm. doesn't define who I am or what it's like to work with me. Exactly. What, what defines who I am and what it's like to work with me is the fact that I am very left-sided, logical, linear-type thinker who takes facts to have things proven to me, and emotional appeals don't particularly have a lot of sway. Mm-hmm. And that's very tends to be very true of you know a lot of people on the spectrum. But we have this thing in society where everybody's looking at the traits, and they're totally missing the picture. The picture is these are people who think a totally different way, which means mm-hmm. a very unique perspective. Love it. Love it. So if we could break it down now, I know that, you know, you're more results oriented, you're more laser focused when it comes to being task oriented, as are many people who fall within the spectrum. But if you have, because I, again, I want the listeners to understand this and there is no better person to explain it than you, because clearly you're an expert on this, not just because you're personally afflicted and you've made it work for you and turned challenge into, you know, I think victory, uh, and you're doing stellar out there in the career world, but um, in the business world. But if you have two individuals who have Asperger's and they are in a situation where they are conversing, how is that conversation, that exchange, that dynamic different than two people interacting with one another who do not have Asperger's? What a great question. I actually had a conversation yesterday morning with a uh, woman who does have Asperger's. Mm -hmm. Um, Mid-age, I don't know her age exactly, but, you know, late 30s, maybe early 40s. And we had an absolutely phenomenal conversation for two hours, never met each other in our lives before, and essentially knew where each of us was going whenever we said something. Wow. <laughs> Switch that over to talking to a neurotypical, uh, and neurotypical for, uh, that comes out of that cloud, uh, uh, neurodiversity concept. So neurotypical simply means a normal kind of person, you know, the, what, what the average majority of people are. I mean, I understand there's no single normal, but collectively there is generally a norm. Mm-hmm. And that's what a, a neurotypical is. So when I have a conversation with a neurotypical, the difficulty is often that they're making references and assumptions that don't exist in my world. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for instance, this is a this is a story I love to use, and it's uh, it's pretty quick. Uh, I like many people on the spectrum tend to get in a habit of what it is I eat. 
You know, I, I like to be on a routine and I don't like to change it. And I was in this kick for this particular bread. It happened to be a potato bread. And every week my wife and I would go shopping and we'd get into the aisle and I'd be looking up and down trying to find my bread. And my wife would inevitably just point somewhere and say, it's right there. Well, <laughs> after a year and a half, um, okay, I'm a guy, you know, it took a while. Uh, <laughs> after a year and a half, I finally asked her, how do you just always point right to it? I mean, I'm a smart guy. I read fast. Why do you always beat me to it? Mm-hmm. And her answer was really simple. I just look at the orange oval on the end of the label. And there's only two brands that have that. So it's real simple then. I've been reading the words all the time. She was just looking for a color. What wow. a difference in how we process so if she were to send me into the aisle and say, get the bread with the orange circle, because that's how she thinks about it, I'd be clueless what she's even talking about. Because until she pointed to the orange on the label, you know, I've been looking at it. I'm not colorblind. I can see colors just as well as, you know, most people. Mm-hmm. But I never noticed it because that is just not part of what my brain processes. My brain processes the, the logic, the literal part, the words that were on the package, not the fact that it happened to have a particular color. Well, that's interesting, and I love the fact that you use that example because I would have thought, based on what you just said, your wife used to understand and draw immediate attention to that particular brand of bread, I would have thought that that would have been your way of sequencing it or understanding it, truly. Well, there, there's a number of different ways that uh, people on the spectrum have a tendency to think, and I, I don't think we have them all down. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, the the person who probably came up with most of it is Temple Grandin, which anybody familiar with autism knows is a quite well-known uh, HBO did a, a special on her. She's a professor here in Colorado, mm-hmm. actually. And she came up with, she says that she's a uh, visual thinker. She thinks in pictures. Mm-hmm. And that's how she thinks. Uh, she also comes up with that there's people who think in, in words. And you process everything in, in a word mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually add one in that she doesn't have. And I say there's some people that are emotional thinkers. They, they don't apply logic. They apply a, emotion. to the Very research. true. Um, so you can get very different patterns of thinking. My particular pattern which I think is very common for a lot of people, particularly in the IT tech arena, uh, is word-based. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say it's probably real prevalent in the IT tech arena is what do we do in IT? We work with very limited languages and create the whole world that's out there now. Uh, so I think I see more word-based people because that just happens to be the career field I spend a lot of time around. But you're definitely right that it wouldn't be at all unusual, particularly for somebody who's on the spectrum that comes more from the art mold. Because yes. it's very common in the entertainment and art world to have people on the spectrum. For somebody from that area, my guess would be the conversation would be the colors, the shapes, the designs. That's where their brain is running, and the words would be more of a challenge. I'm the other way around. The words are real easy. I just go to the textbook, you know, dictionary definition, and I... I Take your word. I don't take anything else to interpret it. I just interpret it purely as the word. Uh, So that's my approach. Uh, But you're right. There is many people and there is a lot of thought out there Mm -hmm. that we don't think in different manners. It's almost as if autism or Asperger's is they think this way. That's it. Mm -hmm. No, we're, we're, we're as much individuals and as unique as normal people are. 
I mean, you, you can't hold up one person and say, this is the, the, you know, the exemplar for a normal person. No, there is no exemplar for a normal person. It's a huge range. And there's no exemplar for an autistic person. If anything, I'm actually a horrible example because, <laughs> well, it's really true because most people on the spectrum wouldn't be doing what we're doing right now. Right. You know, Absolutely. I mean, they might be having a conversation, you and me, but, uh, you know, you and me both happen to know that we've got a lot of friends listening to us at the exact same time. Yes, and that do. would, that would freak out a huge amount of people on the spectrum, <laughs> the concept that I'm talking to like, oh my God, hundreds of thousands. Right. Uh, so I, I'm definitely not typical. And I like to really get that across because at the same time, what you're seeing on TV, that isn't typical. That's okay. just, a particular way that it can express. Typical is, who knows? I mean, it's, you know, just like in normal humans, is typical somebody who's outgoing or typical somebody who's introverted? Well, they're both typical. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, I have all these simultaneous questions coming to me, and of course, everybody who, who listens to me and follows me knows that my preference of uh, interviewing is is unscripted. So as you're speaking and as I'm coming to understand even more, and, and once upon a time in my prior vocation, and I can't recall if we actually spoke about this, Tim, months ago, uh, but I used to work in social services, and I, I worked with pretty much every def- demographic and population of people uh, that fell within the isms, uh, people who were on spectrums, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm very fascinated because I do, with this being you know personal development driven, we talk about leadership, we talk about mindset, and I'm mindset is one of my favorite all-time subjects. So when we talk about Asperger's and what perceivably might be seen as a bit of a, a liability, for lack of a better word, in terms of maybe lack of emotional filter, as you identified at the top of the hour, you know, being socially inept, in a business world, if I was an employer... And I don't want to sound the least bit uh, discompassionate or not plugged into people at an emotional level because certainly for everything I've done in my life and for what I continue to do these days, I'm very much interested in the heart, soul, mind of everybody. However, from an employer standpoint, I would think that you would be the ultimate dream because you're not getting caught up in the gossip. You're not getting caught up in the drama. You're not by the water cooler. You're like, I am task oriented. I am self-disciplined. I am regimented. Uh, call it because of the way you're pre-wired, uh, predisposed. But you, in terms of productivity, I mean, even just having, you know, one person such as yourself who functions that way, you would be such an asset, I would think, to any company. So. Well, you- you're 100% right, but there's also a huge problem, let's say, uh, which makes it 100% wrong. So I'll, I'll explain both ways. Okay. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase has a autism at work program, uh, like many big Fortune 500 companies that most people don't even know these things are out there right now. But they happen to have one. I had the opportunity to talk to the uh, global gentleman who was in charge of the whole program. And one of my questions I always ask when I'm talking to the autism in work executives is, what got you into it? You know, what drew you in? Why are you risking your career to do this crazy thing is really the question. Right. And almost always the answer is there's a child involved in the family. There's a close relative. There's some way that there's a connection to autism. Mm -hmm. And the desire is, to make it when their kid gets out of school that there's employers out there that will accept them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so it was very interesting because he had no reason to do it other than, okay, good. If your reason isn't because of that, why is your reason? And his answer was wonderful. When they did their first cohort and finished training him, which I think it was four months, it might have been three, they were training him to do QA work in an IT environment, so quality assurance. And the team that they trained, their first autistic cohort, was 43% more productive at the end of four months than their five-year, 10-year standard team. <laughs> I believe it. Totally so, believe it. So, yes, you're, you're 100% right. The, the productivity is there because they're just – that's it. We're, we're zoned into the screen. We're just as zoned into it as if we're playing a game till 3 in the morning. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we're just like one. We are one with the computer. Where the problem comes in, and this was actually a, an issue I ran into relatively recently, where the problem comes in, even if at first you come off as not being any different, which I happen to fall into that realm because I do tend to be quite high functioning. Most people would never guess up front. But over time, as you get to know me and are around me longer, you'll start noticing traits start popping out. Mm-hmm. And not that any given one is going to be too much. Uh, you know, for instance, it's a common trait amongst people on the spectrum to talk too much. I mean, they get onto a subject they like and they just keep going forever. That could and, be passion. That could be well, misconstrued. I, I love that. It, it is passion, but we think of it when you put it in the work environment and you're talking to somebody else who has deadlines too. Right. <laughs> now passion becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. Get it? <laughs> and, that's really where the, the challenge is, is yes, there's recognition that there's very unique talents amongst this group that I live in. Mm-hmm. But there's also some very unique challenges to how to manage, employ, and uh, get the absolute best out of us. And they're very different from the way that most companies are run now. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is, If the companies adopt the methods that they've proven to work, all of the neurotypical, regular old plain workers rate all the managers better all of a sudden than they used to rate them before. I bet. Because they were taught now to give things with no ambiguity. There's no between the lines. You've got to be explicit. What worker doesn't wish that they knew explicitly what their boss wanted? Exactly. I I mean, most people are going, hallelujah. Yeah. But – most companies aren't like that. So when you put the autistic worker into that environment, um, an example, I, I had gotten an email from a, a project manager on a uh, contract project I was working on. And we were having some difficulties with the client. And I read the email and, and I understood every single word that the email said. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew what he said he to do, but I also knew that I did not get what he was trying to say. I, I knew that there was between the line stuff there that just was not I, I knew it was there because I knew the guy well enough and I knew the problems we were having. Mm-hmm. So I knew that there was there was content buried in between the physical words. And I actually had to call him up and say, Okay, what is it you're trying to tell me to do? Are you trying to tell me to say this or not say this? Are you trying to tell me to, I, I, Love I, it. I couldn't make the I guess what you would call the social balance from his dialogue that most people would have been able to pull out of it. Mm-hmm. I just read it as a whole bunch of words saying, do this, do this. But I knew in my gut he meant more. So the, I picked up mm-hmm. the phone and called, but that's just from, you know, 35 years of experience of being around people knowing that 
oftentimes I don't get their message. <laughs> well, that's also a good segue for something I want to jump into because one of my other favorite subjects, or, I mean, I have so a myriad of favorite subjects, but it all interconnects. Uh, so, you know, this is a good segue for accountability. So somebody who has an official diagnosis, and this is what I love about what you just said and the fact that you use that as an example to illustrate it because, again, I'm going to extrapolate it and I'm going to go backwards and I'm going to dig deep here for the listening audience. So <clears throat> you have honed enough of a level of a self-awareness within yourself that rather than, as a lot of people do, whether we're talking about depression, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, so-called failure, whether we're talking about every other aspect characteristic of life, a lot of people get attached to the stigma. A lot of people use that as a crutch. A lot of people will not use what they have, try to find the ways in which to navigate, to circumvent it, to no longer let it define them, but to turn it into mastery, turn it into to a way that can serve other people, turn it into a way uh, that makes you stand out in a niche market of doing what it is that you do. So accountability being huge, you know, a lot of people would fall into the poor me victimology syndrome and therefore not feel as inclined perhaps as other people without a diagnosis of some sort uh, to accept responsibility and ownership. So you using that example, you know, people who know you, know your diagnosis, they probably are more apt to be flexible with you, more empathetic perhaps, people who have that history, that dynamic. Um, and rather than you falling back on that and going, okay, well, if I don't quite understand it, but I don't seek out clarification and I just kind of try to muddle my way through this, if it doesn't result in the way that it was asked or expected of me, likely the person's going to say, oh, well, it's because, you know, Tim has Asperger's and I don't really want to take issue with that because at least he made a valiant attempt. At least he made an effort. You don't even let it get to that point. You say, no, this is something I've got to work through. This is my limitation. In, in some regards, but I'm not going to allow it to, you know, immobilize me. I'm going to ask the key questions. I'm going to get the clarification I need, and I'm going to get the job done. So let's talk about accountability with diagnosis. Well, you know, I, I would say one thing is I don't think necessarily that it's a matter of being diagnosed. I, I think it's more a matter of recognizing yourself that they're, you're different. You work and process in a different way. Because as you said, you, you come from a, a background working with all these isms. And yes. you know how close all these isms are. You could change one single particular thing a person does and their ism changes all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Um, which makes it really confusing. So I, I like to use this general term, and I'm going to throw it out there now, of with quotes around the A, ASD lister. And ASD obviously being autism spectrum disorder, but think about it like a Hollywood A-lister. When you think Love of a Hollywood A-lister, what do you think of, right? I mean, you get, they're superstars. You gotta have them or your movie's gonna crash. Right. But you also think about they're gonna be expensive. They're probably gonna be hard to deal with. They're probably gonna be temperamental. And you definitely hire them for their, for their talent and not their off-screen behavior. Mm-hmm. Beautiful example. Well, so to me, an ASD lister is take the exact same kind of traits and just throw it into the technical world. Mm-hmm. We're the people that make the projects work where we can do all these wonderful things, but we do have some bad behaviors that go with it, too. <laughs> 
I love it. But don't we all? I mean, this is it. You know, whether you're working with a so-called diagnosis or not, or whether you're tapped in and you haven't gotten to a point perhaps, and there is a diagnosis awaiting you, but you just haven't followed through with the appointment or, you know, some people are in a state of denial. And again, you can, you can parallel this with anything that exists in the world that gives people an excuse or an opportunity to not take their own self-awareness further or to remedy whatever their so-called challenges or obstacles or problems are. So, I mean, I I just love your examples. And I just, uh, you know, when we first spoke, I had no clue what it is we were, in fact, going to talk about. And when we (laughs) when we talked on the phone, I mean, I thought, this guy is so on the ball. He's so articulate. He's so methodical. I mean, I thought, this guy's a perfect guest. And then when you gave me the backstory and you told me what it was we were going to talk about, I thought, this is fascinating. Just fascinating. You impressed me. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, that, that feels good. Jeez. I mean, I'm used to hearing, uh, gosh, you screwed this one up. So, boy, that feels really nice. Thank you. Yeah, but haven't we all heard that? <laughs> well, it, it is. That's, again, another thing that is very prevalent of people who are on the spectrum is, again, remember, we're, we're half a beat out of step with most of society most of the time. Right. Um, the way I like to put it is we're aliens. We, we are aliens. We came from an alien world. We're, we're Vulcans. We went to the Vulcan <laughs> University of Etiquette, right. which means we don't have any. Okay. <laughs> it's pure logic. There ain't no etiquette other than if it's logical, it's etiquette. <laughs> well, um, in, your, in your particular case with this interview so far, I would have to disagree with you. You, you know, you're very grateful. Uh, you, you know, you're very humorous. You pick up on nuance. Um, there's a lot of things that people may not necessarily think go hand in hand uh, with you having Asperger's, but I think you're disproving and, and uh, demystifying some of that just in how you carry and conduct yourself in this interview. Yeah, I, I think what I really want people to understand out of that is this isn't the me that I was four or five years ago. Right. This is the me that once I figure found out why I was having problems all my life. Now, I, I knew I was different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I, I knew there was something going on there. But heaven forbid you ever tell me that I had autism. You, it would not have flown with me. Uh, right. <laughs> but, um, you know, when when I did finally find out. What it really motivated me to do was to try and figure out how do I take this and now turn it into being my advantage because it very much can be an advantage. Uh, there's many aspects that are, are phenomenal. You know, that, that linear logical kind of thinking of reading every one of the words. Mm-hmm. That makes me a great programmer because, you know, I don't skip sections. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, it, it brings great traits to it, but it also does definitely bring challenges to bear. So I personally have gone through the last four years, I I don't even hate, I hate to think how many zeros are after the number, to be honest, of training. And it's been training in very non-typical things for people who are on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. But amazingly, they're very effective things for people who are the autism spectrum, and uh, we're working to see if we can spread them further. And what they really were is, I got trained of how to speak, how to present, how to put together stories, how to talk by a bunch of the top Hollywood coaches in the world. Fantastic. So, so in other words, I, I recognized I had a deficiency. My, my voice previously, if you had heard a video from previously, I was what you would probably think of as a tech geek speaking. 
mm-hmm. talked at a higher pitch and I went really, really fast and I didn't use commas and I didn't use periods and I just kept on going. And if I lost you, I really didn't give a crap if I lost you because man, I, you know. but that's kind of a tech geek talk. I mean, that's pretty normal. You talk to somebody who's a, a geek and they're trying to explain it to you and they're just buzzing through so fast that right. even if you could follow them, they've gone so fast they lost you already. Well, and, I think you could be prefacing a good portion of the population who are hopped up on Red Bull just to get through the day. Well, <laughs> yeah, you got that too. You're right. <laughs> Even worse, take an Aspie and hop them up on Red Bull. I'll tell you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask you, Tim, you know, because it fascinates me in terms of the emotional filter or lack thereof, depending on how you choose to, you know, look upon it or how other people deem it again, with or without the awareness piece attached to it. Do you feel nostalgia? Do you get nostalgic? Do you feel those things? Uh, probably the best way to – I'm going to attack this from a little different angle. There's a, a, a word, and I always forget exactly how you pronounce it. It's a Latin word. It's like a lex me. I don't know what the heck. It's, it's, it's something. And what it means literally, though, is no word for emotion. Hmm. And – very much, that's a, a very common trait amongst people on the autism spectrum is essentially our brains are detached from the rest of our body. Okay. And when we feel those things that you would describe as an emotion, um, that's just my heart's racing. It's like, what's that got to do with anything? You know, my stomach's grumbling. So what? Um, it, it, I don't take that as being input. I talked to my wife about it and she's like, no, that's that's emotions. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, that's just body sensations. What do you mean? It's... Mm-hmm. Okay, well, <laughs> so, let me, let, let me, just so that we can understand this, let me give you a hypothetical scenario, okay? So, you know, of course, I, I, I always am very careful of languaging because I don't want to put anything out there. I believe, you know, we attach energy to words and then things can somehow manifest, and that's the last thing I want in this particular case to happen. But let's say somebody in your family, your wife, uh, say a pet that you adore, is stricken with some type of illness and you and your family are thrown into an emotional crisis. How do you deal with that? Uh, the, the, the general thought, and this is how it's usually explained is it, often people will say that, that us on the spectrum don't have empathy, mm-hmm. but that's very untrue. What mm-hmm. we actually have is we have a very different type of empathy for us. Empathy is a logical conclusion. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I see the situation. I know that my wife, you know, loves this animal. I know my daughter loves this animal. I know it's causing hardship for them. I mean, I even maybe causing hardship for me, but I don't really process that much other than processing that as mentally, oh, I need to do something because of these issues. I, I don't, I don't feel it. I, I think it. Uh, when mm-hmm. I was first diagnosed, my wife actually asked me, how do you know you love me? Mm-hmm. Wow, great question. We've been married now 33 years. So, you know, this was, you know, it wasn't like, you know, do you really love me? It's only a year or two. No, we'd already been married, you know, 29 years at that point. So, right. <laughs> um, yeah. but she asked me, how, how do you know? And, and my answer was, well, it's just, it's, it's cognitive thought. I know I love you. She said, well, don't you feel anything? Isn't there a, um, and, and finally she came up and she gave me a hug. Doesn't that when I do that, does that give you a feeling? Mm-hmm. And that was really the first time I ever attached physical body sensation to actually being emotions as opposed to emotions being logical constructs in my brain. That's fascinating. Uh, so where that runs into problems is 
as you can kind of see, we're disassociated from emotions. Mm-hmm. So it's not that we don't have an emotional filter when we say those things that, you know, just really tweak somebody or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's that we're not even sensing that channel to monitor. It. Mm-hmm. It's not that we're deciding, you know, purposely or we're just really bad at reading emotion and then we just don't, you know, respond poorly. No, we don't read that channel. It's it, it's kind of like, a, you know, doing the, the uh, Skype that we're doing to connect right now. We don't have video turned on. Mm-hmm. We, we can't do anything about visuals right now because it's just not a functionality we have at the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how we are with dealing with emotion. We turn it into words that, or at least myself, I turn it into words that I can process and deal with. Um, and if I can't turn it into words, then I can't deal with it. Well, let me ask you this. Based on that description, and I really appreciate you being raw and candid with us so that we have a better understanding uh, and perception from your reality of how you view things, feel things, internalize things, you know, understand things. Now, when, if we're talking about, say, bullying – Right. And let's just say some somebody's being cruel and maybe you I think we've all encountered this on some level, whether we could articulate it and give it that name once upon a time, Uh, even pre diagnosis prior to being diagnosed. You know, if people found you to be odd or found you to be peculiar, particularly in social situations and saw you as perhaps standing out from the so-called norm, uh, and then you would be on the receiving end perhaps of, you know, verbal assaults, uh, people picking on you, et cetera, et cetera. Based on how you've described how this, how you think and how you don't think and what you focus on and what you don't focus on, I would think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, would that make your you know, suit of armor in terms of, you know, uh, you know, being able to defend yourself against these things emotionally that far more superior because it's not resonating. It's not penetrating you, right? It's like you can say whatever you want to me. That's not going to affect me. I got to go and do work. Yes, but very much so. And, and you're also very much correct that bullying, I, I don't remember what the statistic, but it's about 80% or so of people on the autism spectrum that have been bullied. Yeah. Uh, it's very common. We're great targets. You know, we stick out a little bit. We don't quite fit in. And the reality is, is we're very poor at defending ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, because often bullying involves, you know, social type taunts. And to us, they're they're going over our head. I mean, it, it just doesn't mean anything so they're taunting us to get to the rest of the peers we don't mm-hmm. care what the rest of the peers think anyway so <laughs> the, taunt didn't, the taunt didn't do anything i love it now when the bullying gets to the point where it's you know knocking books out of your hands and you know mm-hmm. that kind of stuff yeah obviously that that affects us mm-hmm. and there is certainly an effect that when you recognize you're on the receiving end that it just doesn't feel good but you're not picking up the nuances of why most people wouldn't feel good about it. You're just recognizing, ah, I'm losing this one again. And, uh, you know, the best way we've learned to get out of it overall is it's fight or flight. And I, I used to use the fight approach when I was in school. And uh, me and the principals were best of friends. <laughs> and and uh, a whole funny story really there because uh, the principal in elementary school that I spent, I don't know how many hours sitting in his office uh, in a roundabout way as a, was a shirt tail relative of my wife to come to find out. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, small world. But uh, uh, we're not very good at defending ourselves from that emotional taunt. Um, now, when it turns physical, we have a tendency to be very binary. So when we snap and go physical – 
it is scary. Um, not dangerous that we're going to grab a gun and go shoot somebody or something like that. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, we are very focused on this thing that's bothering us, attacking us, coming at us. Right. Some computers could fly. Duck, people. You got it. You got it. And, uh, uh, yeah, not uncommon. I mean, I, I've had times where I was worked up over, you know, I didn't like the way somebody had said something. It was a high-pressure project, and, uh, you know, I'm on the phone yelling at somebody and throwing a mouse into the corner of the queue. And, uh, which for me was just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm venting to my project manager who happened to be remote. But instead, that was taken in the workplace as being, oh, Tim is a violent worker. We need to ban him from the building. Right. Got it. When it simply came down to it, it was just frustration. I mean, I took a mouse, a wireless mouse, and tossed it in the corner of a cube, you know, bounced it off the desk once. <laughs> I mean, yep. how many of us have thrown mice before? You know, I don't know. In the IT world, all of us, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, again, not that I condone, nobody here is condoning violence or anything like that, but I mean, I, that's natural. Whether you have a diagnosis or not, when you are passionate and when you're on the clock trying to get a job done and you, you know, you want to do it with your name attached to it and you want to perfect it. And just because again, the way you're, you're pre-wired and predisposed, you know, anything that kind of disrupts the momentum of what you're trying to do, that pisses us all off. Yeah, you're right. And, and having, you know, having Asperger's particularly, uh, you know, I'm sure it's with all of autism, but I, you know, I can speak from the Asperger side of it, the real high functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it goes beyond just, just pissing us off. Um, I mean, it goes right down to the core of you're, you're, you're trying to totally block me being able to be successful at this point. Got it. Uh, and it becomes a, again, it's a very binary. When it switches that you're against us, you're 100% against us. There's no, yeah, you're 40% friend, 60% enemy. No, you're either friend or you're enemy. There is no (laughs) in-between. Right. So actually something just clicked for me with what you said. So is there a bit of a dual diagnosis going on with the Asperger's such as OCD? There's a huge amount of overlap. Uh, You know, In the medical terms, they refer to it as being comorbidities. And a comorbidity, I mean, you're, I'm sure, familiar with the term, but for mm-hmm. all the listeners who aren't from the medical world, a comorbidity is simply another condition that occurs very frequently with the primary condition. You know, for instance, uh, somebody who uh, uh, smokes uh, is probably going to have heart disease, but at heart disease, they're probably also going to have lung disease, and they're probably also going to have hardening of the arteries and, I mean, a whole bunch of other conditions mm-hmm. that tend to emerge together. Mm-hmm. Well, it just so happens that in the, uh, you know, in the psychiatric realm, there's a whole bunch of these ones that are revolving around what they call, you know, uh, uh, developmental disorders, uh, which would be OCD. It would be, you know, a, a whole pile of things, ADHD, uh, mm-hmm. ADD. Uh, I mean, you, you can throw all those isms and whatever. And as you know, um, very often it's only one different sentence between the two diagnoses. So they're right. so common to be packed together. Mm-hmm. Uh, myself personally, uh, you know, my, my, my core problem is I, I have autism. Um, if you want to say it's a problem, I say it's a great benefit, but that's absolutely challenge. But on mm-hmm. top of that challenge, I do have the very common comorbidities of anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. So I am on anti-anxiety and antidepressants, you know, seven by 24. Mm-hmm. 
not because those are really my conditions. Those just are the comorbidities. They're kind of riding along with that main condition. And if I can control those, I can keep the main condition under better control. Uh, and again, that's why I like that, you know, ASD lister. While it has ASD in it, it's really kind of saying anybody falls into that whole realm of their brain works and processes differently. Mm-hmm. And certainly okay. OCD is working and processing differently. <laughs> Okay, fantastic. Well, again, being cognizant of time, and these interviews always go too quickly for my liking, so we're probably, we have about 10 minutes here. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you the question based on whether it be research-based or your own theoretical perspectives related to this. What do you believe when we know that there's a rise in autism or at least diagnosis, official diagnosis related to autism and those within uh, on the spectrum? What do you believe is the correlation if one, in fact, does or does not exist with vaccinations? Uh, my, my personal is, A, it has absolutely nothing to do with vaccinations. Um, okay. the, the one doctor who was trying to promote that has been discredited. His license has been taken away. And the journals retracted everything he published. Okay. Um, so if that isn't enough of the medical community saying the guy was full of Right. <laughs> <You know. laughs> um, then I, I don't know what is. Uh, now I know there's all kinds of people that are all hepped up of it. It was this and it was that and it caused my whatever to do this. Well, from what we understand of autism, it's caused by the way your brain is wired and shaped and works. Mm-hmm. Well, your brain is already wired and shaped and they can't shoot you with a vaccine and two days later your brain rewires. <laughs> mm-hmm. It doesn't work that way. It makes no logical sense based on what the condition is. Now, when you go to why is it are we seeing more and more autism, Mm -hmm. that's a totally different question. And we've already thrown out vaccines. I actually think it has to do with two things. Mm -hmm. One, we're becoming far more knowledgeable and aware of the condition. Right. Asperger's wasn't known in English languages till 1991 when his papers got translated out of German into English by a woman in the U.K., we didn't even know it existed before then. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, autism, again, we, it was thought to be a childhood disease of nonverbal children for, you know, till the mid 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- there's so much going on and so much change and, uh, you know, that the definitions have gotten to the point where they've gotten better. We finally started to recognize adults can be autistic, too. Right. That that wasn't in the definitions previously. It was a childhood disease. Mm-hmm. And then when you think about it, uh, in the IT realm, and I'll just use IT just because that's a realm I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. I, I would say in most companies I've been in, between a third and a half of the people are either on the spectrum or so close that it doesn't matter. Uh, wow. And that's not that they know. Most of them have no clue. I'm just picking it up because I know the symptoms. I mourn myself and I can, mm-hmm. I can recognize, you know, they only want to stick on the facts. They're always right. They, I mean, there's a million, right. uh, you know, little things that especially as you know it yourself mm-hmm. that you can pick up on and say, yep, on the spectrum. Right. Uh, and it might not be a clinical diagnosis, but it certainly functionally says, okay, this person is different and I need to work with them differently. Just like if you said artist, you would go, oh, different kind of personality. I need to work with them differently. Mm-hmm. You're not saying an artist is good or bad. You're not saying the IT person is good or bad. You're just saying, oh, different mind, different exactly. approach. 
Exactly. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to share with the listeners before we have to part ways here. Where can people find you and what's upcoming for you? You know, what is it that you're entrenched and immersed in right now? What are some of your goals? What are some of the things that you're aspiring to do as we speak? Well, to start with, where people can find out more about me is just go to timgoldstein.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's actually a, a little thing they can sign up and download, which is uh, five you know, easy ways to uh, recognize the neurodiverse. So if any of your listeners are trying to figure out what is that person, which may be their spouse, uh, which actually is not an uncommon question. I get that asked a lot of times when I speak. People come up and say, uh, I think my spouse is on the spectrum. Can I talk with you? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not uncommon. So if anybody wants, that's on the site. Uh, there's huge amounts of information. And uh, there's, of course, my contact is right there. If anybody wants to reach out, I've be glad to. Uh, I'm not always the fastest, but I do answer emails. <laughs> Lovely. Well, at least you respond. Not everybody does. So good on you. <laughs> and as far as uh, yeah, as far as what's going on, uh, there, there's a million things going on. The, the most exciting thing going on uh, real soon is the uh, annual uh, Autism at Work Summit is coming up at uh, Microsoft's Redmond headquarters in I think it's two weeks. Fantastic. And there's a number of Fortune 500 companies, which include SAP and Microsoft and uh, EY and JP Morgan Chase and Ford Motor Company. And I mean, it goes on and on. There's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're working together to create the uh, essentially the knowledge base of how do you go and put the pieces in place to support autistic workers so that you can get the benefits that they can bring out of them without putting your whole organization into mayhem. <laughs> Love it. And so are you going as an expert, someone who's going to be speaking on the subject, or are you going as a participant to listen? Oh, I'm going as a participant to listen, but I may uh, end up uh, playing a little bit of expert. Uh, I have uh, a uh, new friend who uh, is actually uh, does online training for this. And uh, I, don't know, I may be helping him out with some things and talking a little bit there, too. Amazing. Well, Tim, I can't thank you enough for the gift of your time. I've learned so much from you. Uh, you know, and again, it doesn't matter what you think you already know. Sometimes you've got to break it down and deprogram some of that conditioned thinking because there's so much more to learn and who better to learn than from the expert themselves. So for what you've done in terms of uh, creating additional awareness here and doing it with such passion and doing it with such ease, and you're just such an eloquent speaker, uh, and I love the examples that you cite. You, you, you speak very succinctly, so I just want to say you're a phenomenal guest, um, and I very much appreciate your insights and uh, look forward to talking to you again behind the scenes, and you're always welcome to come back and join us, Tim. Well, it would be wonderful. I very much enjoyed, uh, you know, having the chat, and I really like the style of we just kind of see where it goes. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. So I just want to say, too, to my listening audience, I want to thank you once again for joining myself and my guest here uh, today, Tim Goldstein, on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Uh, I you know, look forward to hearing your testimonials, your feedback. You've been very loyal. I want to say thank you again to the podcast subscribers. Again, half a million Living Fearlessly with Lisa podcast subscribers. I want to thank my family and friends over at C-Suite Radio Network, where, again, of course, you can eventually find the podcast link following the live show show of each Friday interview. And I want to thank my sponsors, Halt and Honda and Forever, for believing in myself, the content, and my guests of each week. And I just want to say I'm here to uplift you to fear less and to live more. And I look forward to doing this with you every Friday here on the Contact Talk Radio Network. Go live at 8 a.m. Pacific. 
10 o'clock Central, 11 o'clock Eastern. If you have any show topic ideas or wish to appear as a prospective guest on my show, kindly reach out to me at Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. As well, my website is HTTP, livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. Take care and all my best. Look forward to seeing you next Friday. Love and gratitude. Bye-bye. Live. You've been listening to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.